Right, it is time to dive into Leviticus. We are looking at chapter 1 this morning on page 99 of the Bibles in the seats in front of you. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. He said, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when anyone among you brings an offering to the Lord, bring as your offering an animal from either the herd or the flock. If the offering is a burnt offering from the herd, you are to offer a male without defect. You must present it at the entrance to the tent of meeting so that it will be acceptable to the Lord. You are to lay your hand on the head of the burnt offering and it will be accepted on your behalf to make atonement for you. You are to slaughter the young bull before the Lord, and then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and splash it against the sides of the altar at the entrance to the tent of meeting. You are to skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces. The sons of Aaron, the priest, are to put fire on the altar and arrange wood on the fire. Then Aaron's sons, the priests, shall arrange the pieces, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to burn all of it on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering is a burnt offering from the flock, from either the sheep or the goats, you are to offer a male without defect. You are to slaughter it at the north side of the altar before the Lord, and Aaron's sons, the priests, shall splash its blood against the sides of the altar. You are to cut it into pieces, and the priests shall arrange them, including the head and the fat, on the wood that is burning on the altar. You are to wash the internal organs and the legs with water, and the priest is to bring all of them and burn them on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. If the offering to the Lord is a burnt offering of birds, you are to offer a dove or a young pigeon. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring off the head and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out on the side of the altar. He is to remove the crop and the feathers and throw them down east of the altar where the ashes are. He shall tear it open by the wings, not dividing it completely, and then the priest shall burn it on the wood that is burning on the altar. It is a burnt offering, a food offering, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Thank you to Kelsey. And if you keep Leviticus chapter 1 open, that's going to help you. Let's pray and we'll get underway. Heavenly Father, help us to love you with our minds. And also steady our spirits that we might learn what you want to teach us today through this great book, Leviticus. Amen. So uh, I heard you groan when you said we were studying Leviticus. I saw your frown. I imagined you sitting at your computer about to type the email saying, why are we doing Leviticus? But then you pulled back out of respect. Well, that's a bit of a joke, isn't it? Maybe you typed it and it's sitting in the draft box the draft folder or the app box, and it's ready to send after today. I was talking to Dave Hambury just before Easter, and uh, he asked the same question of me that I think he asked last week up for the front. Uh, the question that we all have, the question on your behalf, is there any value in studying Leviticus? Well, of course I was going to say yes, otherwise I'd be out of a job. 
So the real question was, what is the value of studying Leviticus? It's the elephant in the room, or the elephant in the Bible maybe. So let's deal with it up front. Leviticus is that book of the Bible that baffles us more than any other with its, you know, just kind of preponderance of instructions about sacrifices and offerings and feasts and festivals. Frankly, boring. Not to mention all the discussion in the middle about what you're allowed to eat and what you're not allowed to eat, which is frankly random. And then all the stuff about skin diseases, of all things, and bodily discharges, which is frankly gross. I mean, there's some stuff kind of in the back half that I understand about sexual ethics, but how can I take that on board if I don't take any notice of the food laws? To put it bluntly, as I said at the teaching night on Wednesday night, why should I be against gay sex on the basis of Leviticus 18 if I'm all for eating prawns with gay abandon, which is outlawed in Leviticus 11? Like, am I just choosing which bits to believe because that's what my secular friends tell me and that's kind of what it feels like? So before we start uh, this investigation of the book of Leviticus, I want to acknowledge how natural all of those queries are, but I also want to encourage us that as I've looked at this book in some detail in the last month and had a chance to see just beyond the face value where it seems like it's a set of long-winded instructions and irrelevant laws, it has moved me deeply, I would say more than anything else has for a very long time. Now that was surprising. Because Leviticus is a book that helps us form an ethic, a moral code for life at ground level. It's a book that actually urges us to extend mercy and generosity to the poor and the stranger among us. You know, Leviticus 19 is the place that introduces the golden rule for Christian behavior, to love your neighbor as yourself. Did you realize that came from Leviticus? Surprise. Uh, It's a book that Jesus in the New Testament quote quite frequently. It's a book that helps us to understand in a way that I don't think the New Testament does exactly the same, just the depth of our sin and how we just are in our natural states unclean before God. It's a book that makes us long for a priest, somebody who can really bear our sin and our guilt. And today we'll see that with its instructions about sacrifices, not only helps us understand the sheer potency, the power of Jesus' sacrifice for us on the cross, but also helps us to understand the kind of wholehearted devotion that is acceptable for followers of God. And above all else, and I think, I really think this is what has moved me. It is a book that impresses upon our minds and our imaginations as we read it, and almost in our spirits as we feel it, the extent to which a holy God desires to be in relationship with his people. So if it sounds like I'm a little bit enthusiastic about the book of Leviticus, you have heard me right. Man, this is a piece of literary art. It is beautiful, but I'm really enthusiastic about it because it answers that question. How can sinful people live in the presence of a holy God? And it answers that question positively. Now let me show you, uh, to start with, how that works. If I can take you back last July. Last July, there is a very slim chance that you will remember we studied the book of Exodus. You remember that? 
You might remember at July, we came to the end of the book of Exodus, and as an even slimmer chance, we looked at the, the concept of the tabernacle, or what is sometimes called the tent of meeting. It was that temporary structure that was in the middle of the Israelite camp as they wandered through the desert. It was bedecked in all sorts of furniture and furnishings that were reminiscent of the Garden of Eden. I mean, there were trees and flowers, there were cherubim, there was this kind of candlestick right in the middle of the tent which sort of looked like a tree of life Uh, and uh, the back half of Exodus basically from where the Disney movie finished was all about the construction of this tabernacle or tent of meeting because it was to be the place the very place where God would dwell amongst his people I mean of course God can't be contained anywhere like the whole universe is his but this one place would He would specially live among his people as it was set up in the very centre of the Israelites' camp. Now, if you have an exceptional memory, you might recall the devastating news at the end of Exodus chapter 40, which is on the same page, I think, as Leviticus chapter 1 opened in front of you. So have a look. Exodus chapter 40, verse 34 and 35. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting. That's the tabernacle. The glory of the Lord filled it. Here's the devastating bit. Moses could not enter the tent of meeting because the cloud had settled upon it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. It's devastating, you see. God had rescued his people out of slavery in Egypt to be in relationship with him. But when he came into the tabernacle, this little recreated kind of garden of Eden in the middle of the camp, not even Moses, like Moses, the friend of God, not even he could be in the presence of God. And so that's how the book of Leviticus opens. Uh, Read with me chapter 1, verse 1. The Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tent of meeting. In other words, he couldn't go in. The Lord spoke to him from the tent of meeting. But here's something interesting. You go to the first verse of the next book, Numbers chapter 1, verse 1, and look what it says. The Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting, in the desert, etc., etc. Do you get what those two verses are saying? At the end of Exodus, the people couldn't be in the presence of the holiness of God. At the start of Leviticus, God had to speak to Moses from the tent of meeting. Moses was on the outside. By the time Leviticus ends and Numbers begins, God is speaking to Moses from inside the tent. You see, there's a movement from the outside to the inside. And this magnificent book, Leviticus, shows how sinful and unclean people, that is people just like us, can be in the presence of of a holy God. And so it is wonderful, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I have. And the part of the answer, how can sinful people live in the presence of God that we're going to look at today is sacrifices. That is, there is a system of sacrifices that showed the Israelites how to be acceptable before God. Now, I don't know if you've had experience of red tape recently. Uh, You know what red tape is. It's just systems, procedures that get things done with organisations that can often seem quite baffling or befuddling. You know what red tape is? Nod your head. Okay, three of you are alive. Excellent. Uh, I had some government red tape on Friday. It's just, it's painful. Uh, Maybe you've had to deal with government red tape. Maybe you've had to deal with school red tape. I've been having uh, some trouble with my cars lately. So my 13-year-old faithful Honda just hit the wall. Now, I wish it had literally just hit the wall, because then I could claim it on insurance. 
But, I mean, it just keeps breaking, and it's cost more than it's worth to fix it. And then I inherited this brand-new 17-year-old Corolla from my parents-in-law, which was awesome until it cost me $3,000 to get it serviced and insured and registered. So thanks, Pop. Glad I saved you that trouble. But let me tell you, getting the registrations turned over, man, that was a palaver. You know, you go here, and they say, you can't go here, you've got to go there. So you go, I go there, and they say, look, you've got the wrong form. Oh, take the right form. They say, oh, look, it's now out of date. You're like, oh, right, okay. Anyway, then I need to borrow some money from the bank to buy another one of these things. Well, you haven't seen red tape, have you, until you've seen bank red tape. I mean, talk about complicated systems. I think it should be easy. I want to borrow some of what you've got to buy one of those, and I'll pay you back with interest. I've never not paid you back before. But, man, the forms, the documentation, it got to a point where the guy asked for a document that had nothing to do with anything, and I flat out refused. I said, man, asking me to provide that document is like asking a 50-year-old man to show some ID before he can get into the pub. This is exactly what I said to him. And he said, fair enough, don't worry about it. And I said, I'm not worried about it. (laughs) But I did feel like I was just sort of jumping through hoops, you know, uh, in an unnecessarily convoluted system. And when we start to read about the sacrifices, and you got the flavor of it from the Bible reading from Kelsey, it can feel like an unnecessarily convoluted system where we're jumping through hoops. Now, it is detailed, but it's not unnecessarily convoluted. And it's not a flat, dry handbook to the sacrificial system either because each of them are highly symbolic and they're deep and they're dark in their tone and uh, they're designed to produce a real heartfelt response among the people. And in that way, the systems of offerings and sacrifices showed the people what was required to be acceptable before God. Now, you've got to love God with your mind, so stay with me. Uh, I want Uh, I want to show you how they work big picture, and then we're going to zero in on the burnt offerings that we read about from Leviticus chapter 1. So big picture-wise, there are five kinds of offerings in Leviticus. And just flick through your Bibles and you'll see this. Uh, Chapter 1, there is the burnt offering. Chapter 2, there is the grain offering. Chapter 3, there is the fellowship offering. There is the sin offering in chapters 4 and 5. And there is the guilt offering in chapters 5 and 6. Five different kinds of offerings, each doing different things. Let's start from the back and we'll work our way forwards quickly. The sin and guilt offerings deal directly, as the name suggests, with people's sin and guilt. So when a person does something wrong, whether or not he intended to do that, animals would be sacrificed to atone for that sin so that it's cleansed and forgiven, and also to remove that guilt so that they could once more live in the presence of a holy God. If you're familiar with the idea of sacrifices at all, that's probably the sort of sacrifice you're familiar with, a sacrifice that atones for sin. And we're going to talk more about that when we get to the Day of Atonement in a few weeks' time. But the first three sacrifices aren't really about sin. Did you notice when Kelsey read chapter 1, it doesn't mention sin at all. Uh, If you read those first three chapters of Leviticus, covering the first three offerings, it doesn't talk about sin at all. Sin's really in the background. In the foreground is the idea of how to live in the presence of God, 
in this new recreated kind of Eden in the middle of the camp without getting kicked out like Adam and Eve were kicked out of the original Eden. It's about the precautions necessary to come into the presence of God. It's about what they ought to be like to be acceptable before him. And really, it's an invitation to dwell with God again. So the third sacrifice there in Leviticus 3 is called the fellowship or peace offering. And it involves the sacrifice of an animal from the herd or the flock. And so you'd think of it's called a fellowship offering and it involves kind of eating the emphasis would be kind of eating a meal in the presence of God, enjoying that kind of fellowship. Because fellowship and eating together, is there's a real tight connection. Yeah. Now, that would have happened, but it's interesting that that's not the focus of Leviticus chapter 3. The blood of the animals is not the focus, like it is with the sin and guilt offerings. The focus is actually on the fat and the internal organs and the liver. And here's the thing, in the Bible, the, the inner organs, the kind of guts, if you like, they are symbolic of human emotions. Uh, in our kind of culture, the heart is symbolic of the emotions, but in that culture, the heart was symbolic of the decision-making center, the very center of your personhood. So to love God with all your heart is not about loving Him with your emotions, it's about loving Him with your decisions. If you want to symbolize emotions in Bible language, you talk about the guts, and uh, in the fellowship or the peace offering, the focus is on the guts of the animal being offered. So imagine this instruction, hearing this instruction, performing it yourself, because you and I, you would have been the, you know, the average person was the one who did it, slaughtering the animals with all of the fuss about the fat and the internal organs and the guts that symbolize the emotions. What do you think that would say to you? that to be acceptable in the presence of God, I give to him my deepest emotions, my strongest affections. It might even suggest that I offer over my sinful pride and I give that over. Well, that's what's required to have fellowship with God and to be at peace with him. So that's the fellowship offering in Leviticus 3. In Leviticus 2, it's called the grain offering sometimes also called the loyalty offering because a worshipper would offer up grain, but it symbolized loyalty to God's covenant promises with his people. Uh, if you read Leviticus chapter 2, you see there are references to bread made without yeast, which is reminiscent of Israel's Passover meal when they left Egypt, when they were rescued by God. Have a look in chapter 2 verse 13. There's a reference to the salt of the covenant. You've got to put that in this grain offering. And there's reference to honey, and this could be a bit speculative, right? Fair enough. There's reference to honey. It says, don't put honey in. And maybe that's because under the covenant, they were headed to the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And he's saying, you're not there yet, so don't put the honey in yet. It's all about covenant promises. And I guess as you were offering this, you'd be thinking about loyalty to the promises of God under the covenant that he made with his people. So what does it take to be acceptable before God? Well, I give him both my strongest emotions, deepest affections, and I also offer my loyalty to his promises. And so we come to the last one for today, which is the first one in Leviticus chapter 1, the burnt offering. And as Kelsey um, read it, and as we've already said, uh, it was the job of the average Israelite worshipper to sacrifice the animal. It wasn't the job of the priest at all. And I don't know if you've had to kill any animals, but I've had to kill a few in my time. Let me say, it's never been a good experience. 
Uh, we got hatchling chickens quite a few years ago now, and we were told they were both hens, which is important because you can't keep roosters in suburban areas. They do that cock-a-doodle-doodle thing at um, like four o'clock in the morning. But about 12 weeks into their feathery lives, like I realised, we realised that one of these two beautiful birds was not a hen. And it fell to me, the grim task to end his life. He's a really good-looking bird too. Anyway, I got the boys who had become quite attached to our chickens. I got them to, uh, to tell the rooster what they had appreciated about him and, uh, and to say goodbye, which is odd because I don't think it was an English-speaking chicken. And th- when they had left, I put both hands around its neck and I-, I snapped its neck, which is what you're meant to do. However, I was unprepared for the amount of movement and function a chicken has after it dies. And because it was kind of flapping around furiously, I'm such a city boy, flapping around furiously, I started to get stressed that I hadn't done it properly. And so what I did is I had no choice, but I grabbed it by its body and I just kept banging its head against the hill's hoist until I was sure (laughs) that uh, it felt no more pain. And here's the worst of it. The worst of it is that when I was finished, I looked up and staring at my back window was one of the boys. And he was not traumatised at all. He had an impish smirk right across his face. So I'm just watching him to make sure he's not a serial killer. (laughs) Now I had to kill a few other um, of our chickens, none quite as dramatically. But I've got to tell you, man, even ending the life of that beautiful rooster, it was not an emotionless activity. And so when we come to the burnt offerings in Leviticus chapter 1, or indeed any of the sacrifices, and we see them as just kind of flat and dry instructions, we're misreading them. Deep emotions are meant to be involved. Well, what is it that we're to make of the burnt offering in Leviticus chapter 1? You'll see that the emphasis really is on the whole animal being offered, all of it, rather than just the blood. And it is to be an animal in verse 3 without defect. That's odd because the Israelites weren't told what that meant until Leviticus chapter 22, like 21 chapters later, where they're told that that meant it couldn't be blind, it couldn't be maimed, it couldn't be diseased. So all all the people had to go on was the quality of the Passover lamb they'd used in Exodus. But here's the thing, that same word without defect was used to describe Noah as blameless in Genesis 6 and is used to to tell Abraham the kind of man he was supposed to be in Genesis 17, blameless. And and that's all the first readers had to go on. Now, could you think of two more guys in the Old Testament who, who go all in for God in their complete devotion to him? I mean, Noah leaves the world in a boat. Abraham is ready to give over his son in devotion to God. I mean, you talk about two guys who go all in. And then you have this whole animal whose description matches the two most whole-hearted servants of God to date. What do you think is going on in the mind of the average Israelite as they identify with that animal by kind of leaning on it when they slaughter it and skin it? Because I can guarantee you it was not emotionless. Do you not think that the offerer would deduce that what is acceptable to God is wholeheartedness? He requires it. 
He provides it in the form of this kind of without defect, kind of blameless animal, which the offerer has identified with. And then God accepts this symbolic substitute so that he's pleased to accept this human being, the offerer. And it's not just a pleasing aroma, verse 9, not just a nice smell, it's a pleasing situation. And true, there is no explicit command, but it's hard to imagine that an offerer could walk away from that experience without recognizing that a life that is acceptable to God is a wholehearted one, all in, like this animal has just been, all in, like Noah was described, all in, like Abraham was described. So what does God require if humans are to be acceptable to him? After our sin is dealt with, we offer him our wholehearted devotion, our loyalty or commitment to his promises, and we offer him our deepest and most significant emotions. That is indeed how sinful people remain in the presence of a holy God. Now as... um, you reflect on your own Christian experience or our kind of shared Christian experience, it would not have escaped your attention that we no longer practice the system of sacrifices and offerings here in Leviticus chapter 1 to 7. And it's not just because we've got nice new carpet. Don't want to mess that up. Uh, It's not just because it would scare the kids. It's not just because it would be very expensive, although all of those things are true. Of course, we no longer offer sacrifices because Jesus is our once-for-all sacrifice. Isn't that right? The New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 1 reflects on the book of Leviticus and reminds us of these things. The law, that is Leviticus and the books around it, only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. Those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. In other words, if all those sacrifices actually truly cleansed a worshipper, there would have been no need to keep offering them, right? But they don't. And so later on in Hebrews 10, he repeats that point. Day after day, the priest stands and he performs his religious duties. And again and again, he offers the same sacrifices. They can never take away the sins. But this priest, meaning Jesus, offered for all time one sacrifice for sins because by one sacrifice he has made perfect those whom forever are being made holy. So all these sacrifices we've been looking at in Leviticus, deep and dark, memorable and moving, they point forward from themselves. I mean, it's not just that the people back then were just you know, just symbolically forgiven. I mean, their sacrifices were made valid on the basis of the sacrifice to come of Jesus on the cross. And they give us an indication of the cost involved. And they symbolize the kind of life that was acceptable before God. And they moved people to live in a wholehearted way, but they always pointed forward to the once-for-all sacrifice of Jesus when he died on the cross to cleanse us from our sin so that we can remain in the presence of a holy God so that he made us perfect, that is forever acceptable to him. Do you know, Christians, that's what you are. Even as he is chipping away at the rough edges of our lives, making us more and more like his son in the power of the Spirit. They always pointed forward. 
Now, as we think about the sacrificial system in Leviticus and we compare it to the once-for-all sacrifice in Christ, this is what we normally say, and we're so stupid. We go, how much better off are we? It would have been so inconvenient to have to repeatedly offer sacrifice after sacrifice. Man, so inconvenient. Or um, we say we'd be so much better off because it would have been so expensive to keep slaughtering their animals. Wow, so costly. We're so much better off. But if we think that, what we're really saying is that the sacrifice of Jesus is like drive through McDonald's. Man, it saves us a lot of hassle. Or it's like shopping at Aldi. Wow, it saves us lots of money. You know, the book of Hebrews, it looks back and it doesn't comment on the convenience factor. And it doesn't comment on the economy factor. It comments on the effectiveness factor. Jesus' death doesn't save hassle. Doesn't save money. It works. That's the point of it. The once-for-all sacrifice of Christ works. When Christ offered himself once for all time, sin has been forgiven and there is no longer any sacrifice for sin. It's not about the convenience. It's not about the cost. It is about it working. Christ is our once for all sacrifice. We remain acceptable in the presence of a holy God. But as we finish... The New Testament doesn't say, look, guys, now that all the sacrifices are completed and fulfilled in the once-for-all sacrifice of Christ, chill out, relax, make yourself a cup of tea, have a good lie down, chill out. It says on this side of the sacrificial death of Jesus, but still with the Levitical sacrifices firmly in your mind, it says offer yourselves. Have a look at Romans 12 verse 1. In view of God's mercy... Offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. Can you just hear the Leviticus 1 theme tune playing in the background there? We no longer offer a without defect animal as a sacrifice that sort of symbolizes a wholehearted life. We now offer God our own wholehearted life. In view of Jesus' sacrifice, uh, in the words here, that's described as God's mercy. We offer our bodies, our whole lives, as living sacrifices to God. This is a pleasing offering to God. Right? In language, that's deeply reminiscent of Leviticus, a pleasing aroma to the Lord. So friends, can I ask you as we close up, do you withhold your deepest emotions and strongest affections from God because you've given them to something else? Or someone else? Are there parts of your life that you just withhold from him? Your career? I mean, some of you guys have not even told your workmates you're Christian. What the heck is going on with that? Some of us family people don't want to teach our kids about being Christian. So let me get this right. We invest thousands in their school education musical abilities, sporting careers, and we don't want to open the Bible and read it with them. What the heck? Uh, Is our leisure time the thing that's really sacred? Or our finances, we've just got to keep spending money on ourselves or our sex lives, whatever it is. You know, are there just parts of our lives that we withhold because we feel like we've got to have control over them? not God you know as I've um, been reflecting on the back half of this week about the wholehearted thing 
which I love. I thought, I think I love the idea of it more than what it actually means at ground level. I think I like thinking about it more than doing it. But I wonder what it is for you to really go all in for God. I wonder if you've got an equal commitment to God's promises, but your own talents and abilities and ingenuity, so that you only really offer part of yourself to Him. Maybe. Friends, I'm convinced the New Testament asks us to put ourselves in the sandals of the average worshipper in Israel's day and simultaneously keep the cross of Christ firmly in view so that we know that our sin has been dealt with, which assures us that we are acceptable in the presence of God, but then also so that we are moved to offer unto him our own wholeheartedness, all of our lives lived for God, offered to him. Friends, our New Testament describes that as a living sacrifice. It describes that as holy. And it describes that as pleasing to God. Why don't you join with me in prayer as we ask God to help us do just that. Let's pray. Heavenly Father God, um, thank you for this book of Leviticus. Kind of baffling at the start, but beautiful. Once we get to know it a little bit. And uh, we want to be people who are moved in our hearts, not just by the sacrifices in Leviticus, but it, truly the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross once for all time. We want to be people who are moved in our hearts by that to offer our whole bodies, our whole selves as living sacrifices to you so that nothing is withheld, so that all of our lives is lived for your glory and the honour of your great name. So we do thank you for Jesus. We praise you for his sacrifice. Help us to offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, we're going to uh, finish our time together by singing. This is our offertory song. And uh, it's also an opportunity to put a Connect card in the bags when they come around. Let's uh, stand and sing.